This year, um, we're doing things a little differently in this final session. As part of the 100-year commemoration of Catherine Mansfield, we're honouring her life and work. She was born and grew up in New Zealand, and of course, she left um, as a young woman to go and find her writing tribe in the UK and Europe. But her creative gaze continued to look back at home, to reflect back on New Zealand. And she earned a reputation as one of the world's most innovative and influential writers. But I think if she had been at this festival, she would have been really chuffed and entranced to see the clarity and the diversity oh, sorry, <laughs> of our Aotearoa New Zealand voices and the surge in writing that's come out of the festival, the way it's been respected. And for instance, in this room, uh, I don't know who was in here, but um, the celebration of Wahini Toa was extraordinary. So I want to thank again our special guest curators, Michael and Matariki Bennett, Chris Tees and Dahlia Maleuli for bringing something very special to this festival. And this evening, it's my pleasure to bring to you six writers who know a lot more about Catherine Mansfield than I do, and they've each agreed to tell a story told live about their own connection with KM. And tonight you'll see six giant New Zealanders who really need no big introduction. Miranda Harcourt, Stephanie Johnson, Carl Stead, Charlotte Yates, Paula Morris, and Redma Yeska. They'll come out one after the other um, to reveal their, something about their relationship with Catherine Mansfield. Um, and so, first of all, please welcome Miranda to the stage. That was a good little mic check. I'm, um, I'm normally here as the MC at these events, and so it's a big treat for me to be here as an actual speaker. So, um, so thank you very much, and I really appreciate your beautiful emotion for Kevin Ireland, as I'm sure we all do. Look, everyone here has got a connection to Mansfield. My dear friend Fiona Samuel, who's out there somewhere, told me today that she, like many of us, has stood in the room where Mansfield was born, but also on the staircase in France where Mansfield died. So today, for my connection for Man with Mansfield, I brought this little object with me. And um, thanks to you, Redma Iska, who I think is speaking last today, this object makes perfect sense for this address. Because on page 123 of his book, A Strange Beautiful Excitement, Redma mentions the object lessons that the children would have at Karori Normal School in Kathleen's time which involved holding up and discussing real objects such as an apple or a plant. So I'm going to tell you what this is at the end of my seven minutes up here on stage. Like Redma, I'm a Karori kid. I have a four-generational relationship with Mansfield. Her stories and her people have been with me all my life, my fathers, my grandfathers, and my great-grandfathers. More recently, my audition for Te Kura Toifikari o Aotearoa, the New Zealand Drama School, was a monologue from Brian McNeil's The Two Tigers. Thank you, Catherine, for setting me on my path as a creative person. More recently, I read Catherine's letters for Charlotte Yates, who's going to speak to us tonight, Charlotte Yates Mansfield, in her own words. And a few years ago, I read for Radio New Zealand Mansfield's first ever published story, His Little Friend, which Redmer cleverly unearthed in his research. It's a practice run for the garden party, which Mansfield would write and publish 22 years later. Redmer and I are both karori kids. 
At Karori Normal Primary School, I used to sit for my lunch under the same huge old pine trees, now very sadly chopped down, as Isabel, Kaziah, and Lottie did in the doll's house with their friends, the, the truly named Emmy, Jesse, and Lena. They're, those are real names of, of Mansfield's friends. Like Catherine, I then went to school at Marsden, which was called Fitzherbert Terrace School, where she spent two years from 1900. My grandmother, Dorothy Millay, whose uncle was the great pre-Raphaelite painter, John Everett Millay, whose work I went to, the, um, to have a look at at the Auckland Art Gallery today. Um, so Dorothy Millay attended Marsden with Catherine Mansfield. And four generations later, I go to Marsden every bloody day, as we still have a daughter there. Actually, only last week, um, my youngest daughter had to learn and show a monologue based on one of my favorite stories, Her First Ball. Have you read it? If you haven't, run and, uh, and read it now. It's so fantastic. My first ball was right across the road from Marsden at St. Mary's Church, where the Beechams walked to church of a Sunday in their Karori days. Dorothy Millay would then marry my grandfather, Gordon Harcourt, who lived with his parents and siblings right next door to the Beechams in Hawkston Street, before they moved to Karori and then to 75 Tenakori Road. And actually, Mansfield wrote about those neighbours, the Harcourts, in a story called An Ideal Family. <laughs> my great-grandfather, my great J.B. Harcourt, the progenitor of Harcourt's real estate, which I have to say, sadly, then sold by his son, Stanton. Um, my grandfather, J.B. Harcourt, who was, he was locally famous as a keen grower of hydrangeas. And he's characterized in that story, in An Ideal Family, under a different name. Here's a little bit about him from that story. Old Mr. Neve stopped dead under a group of ancient cabbage palms outside the government buildings. The wind of evening shook the dark leaves to a thin, airy cackle. He couldn't help a grim smile as painfully he began to climb the hill that led into fashionable Harcourt Avenue. He reached the corner house, their house. The carriage gates were pushed back. There were fresh marks of wheels on the drive. And then he faced the big white-painted house with its wide open windows, its tulle curtains floating outwards, its blue jars of hyacinths on the broad sills. On either side of the carriage porch, their hydrangeas, famous in the town, were coming into flower. The pinkish, bluish masses of flowers lay like light among the spreading leaves. None of the Harcourts liked Catherine. She was naughty, she was a bad egg, and in return, she did not like them. I think the Harcourts sympathised with her parents. They watched Annie and Harold deal with the trickiness of a surly, unruly teenager in the midst of a sexual awakening who just wanted to play music and leave home. Does that sound familiar to anyone here? <laughs> and, um, and Mansfield did not always treat her subjects kindly. The Nathan family, whom she renamed the Samuel Josephs, the Harcourt family, whom she renamed the Neves, Perhaps her sharp caricatures of these local Wellingtonians channel how desperately Catherine wanted to escape New Zealand and begin her real life on the other side of the globe. We all feel the tragedy that her most famous stories were written with such longing about New Zealand in her last years when she knew that she would never see it again. Redmond just reminded me of the quote, uh, my heart beats for Montan as it beats for Korori. Her first ball, prelude, the doll's house and the garden party and it's that short story which finally brings me back to this object. This is a, a cigarette holder from my great aunt Evelyn. My cousin just gave me this the other day. 
This object would have been at those very garden parties. Evelyn was the one who would arrange the parties for her father, old JB, at Hawkston Street, arranging the flowers, issuing the invitations, making sure the ices were chilled. Of course, she would invite the Beechams and their children, the Fishers, the Nathans, the Bethunes, and the Hutchisons, the Von Zedlitzes, the Williams. And so this object connects me across time all the way back to those parties, the cigarettes, the dresses, the ferns, the hydrangeas, and the people all coalescing into the memories Manson, Mansfield would turn into the garden party in 1922. As she said, it's my favourite quote, I shall tell everything, even of how the laundry baskets squeaked at 75. And as Redmer says, Catherine, proto-feminist, counter-cultural hero, modernist, I salute you. Thank you. Hello, everybody. <laughs> You're the stayers. <laughs> um, uh, before I start talking about um, KM, I, I would also like to uh, pay a little moment of tribute to KI, Kevin Ireland, who, um, as we know, uh, died on Friday, a bon vivant poet, wine connoisseur, and friend to many, and he will be very sadly missed. Anyway, on to KM. In Ali Smith's introduction to the collected stories, she lists how Catherine Mansfield has been viewed by different readers as a sweet and wholesome tragic victim, a selfish, dark-eyed piece of trouble, a feminist, an anti-feminist, a satirist, a sentimentalist, a miniaturist, an overinflated reputation, a repressed lesbian, a colonial bisexual angel devil plagiarist original. <laughs> I can think of no better introduction. If I was to do a chronological take on how KM has featured in my life, it would begin with my maternal grandmother who had a collection of Mansfield stories. This was the same grandmother who also had a copy of Germaine Greer's The Female Eunuch, published in 1970, when I was nine. I read it when I was 12, in secret, sure that the cover illustration, an armless, hollow female torso slung on a bar with handles on her hips, would be enough to have it taken out of my hands. I'm sad to confess I don't remember reading Mansfield at the time, and probably didn't. She would have seemed to me old-fashioned and irrelevant. My literate grandmother aside, we did not have a lot of books in our family. My father had a rule that I was not allowed to read during the day because it was a waste of time. He would ask me, why are you so interested in something someone's just dreamed up? It wasn't his fault that he had this attitude. He did not have anything like the opportunities for education that I had, and most of them afforded by his hard work. He went out to work when he was 14. Somehow, though, 
It was planted in my head, as well as the heads of many of my generation and generations before and after, that Catherine Mansfield was an icon up there with Edmund Hillary and Kitty Takanawa. A hairstyle later popularized by Mary Quant had already been rocked by KM. The punk desire to die at 30 had already been achieved by KM, who almost managed it at 35. The ubiquitous idea that in order to achieve anything you had to leave dull, restrictive New Zealand and never come back was pioneered by KM in 1908. Phrases entered our lexicon by osmosis. I seen the little lamp from the doll's house being the most well-known, closely followed by risk, risk anything, care no more for the opinions of others, for those voices, do the hardest thing on earth for you, act for yourself, face the truth. In the 1980s, like many New Zealanders, I was further drawn to Catherine Mansfield, the woman, through Cathy Downs's brilliant play, The Case of Catherine Mansfield, which she performed over a thousand times in six different countries. I suspect others, much later, in 2011, were drawn to her by Fiona Samuel's timeless and evocative film, Bliss. By the time I started to write seriously and miraculously to be performed or published, I still felt no real connection with Catherine Mansfield. She had left, I had stayed. She had a father who funded her departure and life thereafter. I had a father who loved me, but didn't love the things that I, I did and expected me to make my own way in the world. It bemuses me when writers claim an affiliation with her. Philip Larkin and Angela Carter did so, and closer to home, Kirsty Gunn and Sarah Lang have both published books exploring that relationship. It wasn't until the year 2000, when I was awarded the Catherine Mansfield Fellowship, that I felt closer to her less envious of her opportunities and more admiring of her writing. It was in Monton that I read, cover to cover, her collected stories. In that year, at the age of 39, I finally went to Europe for the first time. Unlike Mansfield, I was accompanied by a husband and three kids. It was my first opportunity for a lengthy, concentrated period of writing since the eldest was born in 1988. Each day I left our flat and caught the bus to Montan-Garavan, walking up to the Isola Bella and letting myself in through the gate and in the door of the basement writing room. In Mansfield's day, it would have been where the gardener kept his spades and rakes, but still there was a strong sense of her presence, of her ghostly footsteps on the terrace above. There was also a strong sense of the New Zealand writers that had been there before me since 1970. Michael King had told me a story of how he had arrived in Monton and gone straight down to La Plage, where he plunged into the wine-dark sea and was made ill from it. I thought of Marilyn Duckworth cooking her meals over a camp stove in the room. I thought of Maurice, of Maurice Shadbolt, who spent his fellowship in the early stages of dementia and drove everyone mad. I thought of Elizabeth Knox, who was my immediate predecessor and who had given me some handy tips before I left. I wrote a novel and a full-length play, and I was very happy. I wished I could have stayed there forever. I'm ashamed to say I sometimes wish that I was there as a single, younger writer, and that I could have had adventures like KM's, but without the heartache, confusion, and tuberculosis. 
It was during her time in France that KM came up with this idea that the reason the French always end up in bed is because their furniture is so uncomfortable. <laughs> Near the time of departure, my husband and I made a trip north and went to Fontainebleau to visit KM's resting place. I had no flowers, so I rolled her a couple of fags. She was always writing to Middleton Murray, begging him to send money and tobacco, and laid them reverently on her grave. I had a pulse of rage, it was written on her headstone, wife of John Middleton Murray, 1888 to 1923, born at Wellington, New Zealand, died at Avon. No mention of her achievements. I told her how glad I was that she had gone to France, which was why I could. How sorry that I was that I had passed so much of my life not acknowledging her genius. And I wondered, if she had been born later, would she have stayed longer in Aotearoa and not been quite so scornful of who we are? Would she have written more stories set here, stories like the tragic and harsh woman at the store, or gentler tales like The Voyage? I wondered if she would have had children to love and discovered that it was still possible to write. I wondered if she would have made a pilgrimage like this one. I wondered if she would have been as lucky as we are to have an antecedent as brilliant as she is. Thank you. I'm not sure where I'm, whether I'm supposed to be there or there, but um, I didn't quite um, get the message about um, having a story about Catherine Mansfield. So I, I'm just going to talk about Catherine Mansfield. But um, I'm very, like all of us, I'm very sad about Kevin Ireland's death. Kevin and I were to launch, uh, have a joint book launch at the Devonport uh, Library on the 30th and uh, I suspect it will, was going to be chaired by Steve Brodius, and I suspect it will go ahead with Kevin's wife, now widow, Janet. So I hope so. That's a bit of a plug for the occasion if you're in the area. Um, when I was 10, which is um, 80 years ago, uh, there was a wheat big series of cards of famous New Zealanders. Uh, so, the, you know, there was the best all black who was George Nepier and the best soldier who was Bernard Freiburg who was leading the New Zealand troops. This was during the Second World War and so on. And the best writer was Catherine Mansfield. And so I heard of her when I was age 10. And I suppose from time to time... Uh, I read a story and liked it and admired it and thought it was very clever and very sensible and so on. But I didn't really, as I got older, still didn't know much about it, certainly not as much as I should have known, um, because she didn't figure in school and she didn't figure in university courses. So when I got the Catherine Mansfield Fellowship, at the same age uh, as the last speaker, 39, um, I thought, well, I, 
you know, as an honor to Catherine Mansfield, I better um, take notice of her work. And so we sailed, uh, again, like the last speaker, I, I went with a spouse and, and uh, three children aged eight, five, and two. The middle one, Charlotte, is now Charlotte Grimshaw, and she had her first school experience in Montal. Um, but uh, I took with me, because we traveled by sea, so you take a lot of luggage, I took um, the, the collector's stories of Catherine Bensfield, the 1954 edition of the journal, and the letters to John Middleton Murray, which is by far the most letters that she wrote. Uh, and uh, so that my day job was writing fiction, which I'd said I was going to do. I was going to write a novel. It turned into not a novel, but a novella and some poems. But that, that was my day job in the Villa Zola Bella. But um, my re um, free time reading was Mansfield, and so I read virtually all the Mansfield that was available in print. And I did know something about her because um, uh, Anthony Alper's biography had been um, published in the 1950s. Um, so I got the idea, what, what struck me immediately was the extraordinary, extraordinary brilliance of this, the person that was present in the letters and journals. The stories are variable. At her best, she's incomparable. I mean, she's, she's an absolutely brilliant short story writer. At other times, she, she's less than her best, as most writers are. But uh, the variation between very good and astonishingly brilliant was quite extraordinary. But the letters and journals seem to me to uh, contain all the evidence of that natural talent that she had. Uh, and so I conceived the idea of putting together a collection of um, letters and journals. Uh, and I made a start when I was in Monton, and then I had eight months there, and then the rest of the year, four months in London. And I went to Penguin and said, what about this? And they liked the idea. And they gave me the use of... Um, uh, photocopier and facts and that sort of stuff. Um, and in the, uh, so in the British Museum, which has a surprising collection of Mansfield's letters, I, I went there and, and read a number of those and copied them. And then when I came back to New Zealand, every time I had reason to go to Wellington, I'd go to the Turnbull Library and read the letters there. So I assembled this collection. And they were published in um, uh, 1977. I've got a monitor here that's supposed to tell me when I read seven minutes. It's now, <laughs> it's now saying 1.43, so I don't know whether that means I'm one. It's now 1.30. Oh, it's counting down. Uh, that means I've got a one and a half minutes left. I'm sorry, I'm only, you know, I'm only not even halfway there. Um, so, um, and eventually this collection was published, first a, a lovely hardcover by Alan Lane, and then in a Penguin paperback in their series called The Penguin Modern Classics. And it was published in 77, and it remained in print 
for 25 years, so it sold many, many copies, and many people know Mansfield's letters and journals through that collection. And then when it finally did go out of print, it was reissued here for a couple of years by Vintage, and now it's gone. But I don't know why somebody, if there is a, a lively publisher present, why doesn't somebody um, re reissue it? Because it's, uh, it's, it's terrific evidence of this absolutely extraordinary raw talent and brilliance. That, I mean, and it's so entertaining, she's so funny. Um, it, there's terrible evidence of the, the sad decline in health towards her final uh, demise. I, I'm supposed to look at the monitor, and it now says it's counting down from 10. So, uh, <laughs> so I've got a lot more to tell you, but I better uh, obey the monitor. Now it says naught. So, OK, goodbye. <clears throat>
His insightful selection showed me her poetry was a valid vein to quarry, with some knockout imagery and wordsmithery, plenty of emotive effusiveness, and her musicality evident in the pulses she used, not forgetting her first ambition was to be a professional cellist. Her poems are full of biographical detailing, but often at a granular level. The closer you look, the more you find. And I got the sense, perhaps, because of their privacy, the poems were less compressed or restrained than her prose, less under the pump. All of this sits well in song. So I dug in for a fresh focus on what O'Sullivan describes as the fascination of the great prose writer's mind, when for various reasons, she chooses to move from her metier. At one stage, she experiments with a new style of poetry intended to pair with her drawings by friend and benefactor Anne Estelle Rice. One such image was of the masses of charred logs and the burnt out bush she'd seen on her camping trip in the Hawke's Bay and Uruweras as a 19 year old. In her notebook, she described the logs looking like strange, fantastic beasts. In, her, uh, uh, in 1918, she developed this in her poem, Picnic. The logs became rocks that looked like a herd of shabby beasts. By 1921, it was rewritten in another notebook, becoming part of the detailed prose of her short story, At the Bay. Over there on the weed-hung rocks that looked at low tide like shaggy beasts come down to the water to drink. Here she's using poetry as toolkit over years, intentionally infusing her prose with its overtones. And who wouldn't want to be part of that? Prof O'Sullivan, together with Dr. Margaret Scott, painstakingly edited the five volumes, The Collected Letters of Catherine Mansfield, over 14 years. To present the Mansfield album as a live concert, I worked on a curation of these letters after devouring the five full volumes. What a read. They span the emotional gamut from beyond banal accounting to visceral hatred, distraught devotion to laugh out loud whiplashings of sarcasm, hard to put down and sometimes equally as hard to pick up. Not so much of a connection, but more like I was living in Camp Catherine. I cast local legend and self-confessed Mansfield fan, Miranda Harcourt, to narrate the letters when we performed the live show as a linking device to allow 12 different artists to enter and exit the stage for one song each. She was diligent. She was professional, coming to rehearsal and production meetings with a game face on, formatting the script beautifully which we had spiral bound several copies, one for her, one for the stage manager, and one just in case, as the premiere, um, just in case, at the exciting premiere in Wellington's Michael Fowler Centre. The show was called Mansfield in her own words. Then when it ended, I asked Miranda for the script back to prepare for the Auckland show, and she looked at me like a guilty five-year-old and said, I can't, I've ripped it up. She'd torn the thing apart, page by page, as the show progressed, not to goof. And that, children, is the power of Catherine Mansfield. She can make you rip it up and start again. Thank you.
John everyone, I'm Paula Morris and I'm tall, so this needs to be adjusted for me. Like Carl, I didn't really get the memo about tonight. I thought we had to speak off the cuff without any notes, so I in fact wrote stuff on my hand. <laughs> I was doing it in the green room and everyone was just looking at me, nobody said anything. Then they'd pull out their scripts. Like, oh, nice. I, so I brought my little cheat sheet with me. But in 2019, I was the Mansfield Monton Fellow. So my husband, Tom Moody, and I got to spend several months in Monton, a place we would not have gone to, I don't think, if Catherine Mansfield had not lived there in 1920 and 1921. And we spent several months there. It was really wonderful in every way. Every day, I would walk down the hill from where we lived in Garavon, which is the sort of garden area right on the border with Italy. And I'd walk down the hill to the Villa Isola Bella that Steph was talking about. Catherine Mansfield lived in that villa, but we worked in what they call the Memorial. The, it's like a cave underneath. White walls, chalky, dank, cold. I really loved it. <laughs> and every day, I had to cross the railroad tracks, and there was a big sign that said, Danger du Mont, danger of death. <laughs> and I thought about Mansfield being there, because of course she was in Monton hoping for a cure. And instead, it was just really one of her stations of the cross. Yeah, there was no cure to be had. So I'm thinking about Mansfield, and I think about cross, and I think about crossings and borders. We're right there by the Italian border. We have the sea. We have the rail tracks. Here I go thinking, and I'm thinking about houses. When I think about Catherine Mansfield, I think about houses a lot. And not long before I was in France, I wrote my version of her story, The Garden Party. And many of you are familiar with that story. It's not really about a garden, is it? It's about two houses. And one of them is on the hill and is airy and it never floods. And it's where the rich people live. And then one, you have to cross a broad street and go down what she describes as a dark, smoky lane to these mean cottages. And that's where the poor people live in the story. And the main character, Laura, goes down with a basket of food and gets to see a dead body. It's my kind of story. So I rewrote it, and I called it Isn't It, which is the very last line of uh, The Garden Party. But I set it in contemporary Auckland, in Mount Roskill, and made it a subdivided property. So many of you are familiar with our mania for subdivision in Auckland. So the little houses at the front and then the big house, which looks like it's in Tuscany, which I don't believe has similar weather to us, is up the back. So I'd rewritten that. So I was thinking about houses and real estate. And then when we were in France in 2019, and then again just recently, I was thinking the Villa Isola Bella, where she lived, is now subdivided into apartments that were empty the whole time we were there because the people who own them only come in the summer. So. It's no longer a house. Uh, Sudpre, where we lived up the road, used to be two very beautiful villas in the 20s. And uh, they now, the family, the British family who owned them, knocked them down and built a kind of ugly 70s block of apartments in their place. Our great friend in Monton was William Waterfield. So William was the, the hub of the British expatriate community there. And... He lives in a very beautiful place, Claude du Perron, which his grandparents had bought in probably the teens or the 20s, with a very famous garden. And I said to him, your grandparents lived here when Mansfield was here, would they have met her? And he said, oh no, she was rather too bohemian. 
And William, by the way, was an incredible eccentric. He always wrote emails to me in capital letters. And our first day in Montau, he took us to the market in his car, erratically driven, so that we could buy food. And as he was reversing into the car park, he went, beep, 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 beep. Tom and I were looking at each other. He was a great person. Um, so William's grandparents bought that villa but when World War II broke out, they fled. They were afraid of being detained and they tried to get into Spain and they ended up very sadly taking their own lives because they were so scared about being detained. And this made me think about the writer Walter Benjamin who also tried to flee France at the same time. He was a, um, a contemporary of Mansfield's. And uh, when he was not able to cross that border, he too took his own life. And the thing I've written on my hand is a a poem by his friend Bertolt Brecht, part of it, he wrote, then at last, brought up against an impassable frontier, you passed, they say, a passable one. And it's impossible to be in Montau or Garavan these days without thinking about frontiers because you see walking along the train tracks or actually in the train coming from Italy, immigrants from Africa who were trying to get into France and who are arrested at that first station, which is Garavan taken off the train, driven back in vans. Some yeah, try to just walk over, so where they're drinking a coffee, and we see families trying to cross, walked back. Sometimes people try to climb the cliffs, it ends very badly. Um, yeah, often they're on the train and are just taken off at the first stop. So I think about Catherine Mansfield and I think about home and lack of home, about being stateless and homeless and wandering. Um, I will actually have to look at my cheat sheet now, but I'm not putting on my glasses. That's how vain I am. Okay. So just to conclude, Mansfield left Monton in the middle of 1921. And she only had 18 months to live after that before she passed the passable frontier to the next life. William Waterfield, our great friend in Monton, died in 2021. And so we never got a chance to say goodbye to him. Last November, we were back there. It was extremely hot weather because of uh, climate change, I believe. So we were mainly spending our time lying on the beach, drinking rosé and reading Japanese novels, which is my favourite thing to do. And we went back to visit William's garden. We went back to the memorial where in the, underneath the Villa Isola Bella. And people often ask me, do you feel Catherine Mansfield's ghost? And I have to say, no, I don't feel her ghost, but I feel her spirit, and I felt William's spirit as well. Kia ora. It's really great to be here. In 2016, while investigating Catherine Mansfield's Wellington childhood, I found myself one day in the dimly lit stack rooms of the city library. A friendly librarian escorted me past the rare books to a metal shelf of bound copies of something called the New Zealand Graphic and Ladies' Journal. You should have a look at these, they said. So I staggered back out into the light 
with azure coloured volumes that were so big and heavy, the friendly librarian balanced them on my shoulder. I hoped that a peep at the weekly graphic might help me understand society in turn of the century Thorndon, the rarefied world of Kathleen Mansfield Beecham's childhood. But I never thought it would yield buried treasure, the lost output of an 11-year-old writer. I sat in the high-ceilinged reading room, flipping through this Auckland broadsheet, published from 1890 to 1908, a paper aimed at colonial elites, including millionaire households like the Harold Beecham's. Inside were many references to Catherine Mansfield's family. Here was Harold farewelling the Duke and Duchess of Cornwall and York in soaking Wellington weather. There was Tinnacory Road hostess, Annie, in a, quote, pretty gown of soft cream boil, boil, tucked, and the bodice softened with lace and pale blue silk. After a day, I was bored, but I pressed on. I'm Dutch. And I remembered what my biographer hero, Robert Caro, once said. Turn every page. Meanwhile, the children's pages at the back of the graphic were proving a bright distraction. I was drawn into the cousinhood the community of young misses and a few masters who read the paper on a rainy Saturday afternoon. Editor Cousin Kate awarded a cousin's badge in red satin for a published, published letter or story. I began to get the strangest feeling. Mansfield must have known the graphic because her family and their privileged world popped up in it so often. And if so, would she have been able to resist contributing something? So I kept reading, hour after numbing hour, driven on by a weird, nettlesome hunch. One day, I opened the edition of 8th of June, 1901, same old. Another caricature of politician Joseph Ward on the cover. Another instalment of Rudyard Kipling's Kim. Then, boom! Here in the middle of the children's page was a letter signed by a Kathleen Beecham. Dear Cousin Kate, what beautiful competitions you're having. We have a dear little kitten called Jimmy, pure black except for a white tip to his tail. Every morning he comes upstairs with a morning tea and expects to be rewarded with a piece of bread and butter. This dear little puss is on the table beside me now and is playing with the blotting paper. He had pulled over the ink, so excuse the smudge. I have such a pretty garden. The border is double purple primroses and my initial K is in white primroses in the center. Might I write another story for the Christmas page? Young Kathleen's initial K in white primroses? Really? I don't think so. 
I chortle out loud, sit back, overcome. A few hours later, I turn up a second letter. I'm fixated on her mentioning another story. The date is 1901, and her first officially published story doesn't appear until 1907. A graphic debut would be little short of revelatory. revelatory. I text Vincent O'Sullivan. The reply is encouraging, yet terrifying. Quote, sent in high excitement. <laughs> KM must be talking about an earlier story. So if you could find that. No pressure. He also confirms that, that, the, that the letters I just found in the graphic are pure gold, predating any other known ones by years. But I'm still inconsolable. I begin scouring the children's pages, jumping from atlas-sized volume to volume, hauling out more from the stacks, back and forward, nothing, nada. By the following morning, I'm sleepless, hanging my head, certain I'll never find what I'm looking for. Around midday, I reread the issue of Saturday, 13th October, 1900. Richard Seddon, busy annexing the South Pacific, caricatured on the cover as a Fijian chief. Suddenly, wondrously, I spot an inky name, Kathleen M. Beecham, aged 11, Wellington. I can't bring myself to read further. Eventually, I open my eyes to a story entitled His Little Friend. It tells of old John Long, a kind married man without children, a 74-year-old who befriends a young boy from the slums, little Bobby. Little Bobby sickens quite soon after the, after the, the two meet, but he delays his death until the old man's call to the cottage. Here's a tragedy set across the road from 75 to Nakori Road. Sentimental juvenilia with a lot of links to the death of little Nell and Dickens, etc. And yet a foretaste of the garden party. At 11, Mansfield is already grappling with harsh, bleak truths. In 2000, 2017, his little friend was reprinted in my biography, A Strange Beautiful Excitement, Mansfield's Wellington. And uh, just out of interest, the graphic has since been digitized and added to the awesome Papers Past website, so it's really worth a read. My lucky strike in the stacks helped me see Mansfield in a new way, her wild and unquenchable ambition, alive in white and purple primroses. A published writer was on her way. Thank you. Cheers, Catherine Mansfield. Wish you were here. <laughs> um, I'm just going to welcome all of the writers back on stage so you can uh, uh, show your appreciation. Miranda Harcourt, Stephanie Johnson, <laughs> Carl Stead, <laughs> um, Charlotte Yates, Paula Morris, 
and Ridma Yifko. Please, thank you so much. <laughs> it's been wonderful.